0: But this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. And I wanted to share with you the words to a song that we're going to actually close with today. And then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll read through 1 Peter chapter 3. But There's a song, it was written by a man named or actually his wife, Ernie Rettino's wife, Debbie Kerner Rettino. And some of you that have grown up in the church, you might recognize him as Salty, the singing songbook. But they wrote a song called Welcome to the Family, and it says, Welcome to the family. We're glad that you have come to share your life with us as we grow in love. And may we always be to you what God would have us be, a family always there to be strong and to lean on. May we learn to love each other more with each new day. May words of love be on our lips in everything we say. And may the Spirit melt our hearts and teach us how to pray that we might be a true family. And as I was praying about what to share this morning, this weekend, I was taking care of my my youngest son, he's one and a half, and, and one of the things that, that kind of blew me away is that he watches a lot of the, the modern cartoons, and so there are these really sharp graphics and really great sound effects, and you have all these things going on. But sometimes in the middle of doing that, my son, his name is James, James will come up and he'll say, salty, salty, and he would rather watch these old cheesy, cheesy videos, live-action videos of the big guy dressed in a big blue book and his name's Salty, the singing song book. And he, and he goes through and he teaches the kids about how to praise the Lord. He teaches them about Bible stories and different things that are, are taking place and how that relates to being a child and being a child of God. And it just struck me so much as we got to this one song, Welcome to the Family. As he's inviting, this was a song that he used basically as an altar call at the end of one of the shows that they did. And you see all of these kids Coming up on the stage and and it just began to strike me how important it is for us to be a family how important it is for us to act rightly within this family I mean think about it we 're asking people to join this family right I mean this part of our ministry here on the earth once we become a child of god we 're supposed to go out and to make disciples we 're supposed to go out and invite others to be a part of this same family well If we're not doing this right, if our family looks terrible, if we act terrible towards each other inside the body, inside of this family, who's gonna want to join? You know, and it just struck me and it it made me think about how important it is to really, really be a family. And then as I was reading through different passages, I came across First Peter chapter three, verses eight through seventeen and it just really struck me that i think that this is an encouragement and an exhortation that we needed to hear as a body here. And so we're going to read through the first few verses of that section beginning in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll read through 8 through 11 and then we'll go ahead and pray. He says, "Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing" knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning desiring to hear from you, Lord, not not to hear from me or anyone or anything else, but desiring truly to hear from you. We pray that your spirit would move in a great and mighty way, that you would grant to us your understanding and discernment, that we would rightly divide your word, and and that we would be able to hear you clearly speak to our hearts this morning. We also continue to pray for, for Bridget, for Yvette and Roman Moran. Lord, we pray that you would continue to heal Bridget, that you would strengthen her, and that you would give Yvette and Roman strength and peace and understanding during the difficult time that they're going through right now as well. And so we give you this time and all that we are, and we ask and pray all of these things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So even though we didn't read through that whole section, just in that little section that we read, Peter shares so much about what it means to be a family. He's just finished explaining how we're to respond to each other in very specific relationships in the beginning of, of chapter 3 here. He's talked about how we're supposed to respond in a workplace situation. Then he goes on to talk about wives, how they're supposed to respond to husbands, and husbands, how they're supposed to respond to wives, and how they're supposed to act. And now, after having shared all of this doctrine and theology, and then starting into practical relationships, now he gets to this place and he starts sharing some keys for another very, very unique relationship that we have, and that is as brothers and sisters in Christ. And really, this is how we're to live with and love everyone, but especially inside the body of Christ, how we're supposed to treat each other. And I would suggest to you that one of the easiest traps for a child of God to fall into is for us to begin to take these relationships inside the body of Christ for granted. To take these relationships for granted, to start to abuse them. And when we take these relationships for granted it leads to a number of problems both for us as individuals but also for the particular section of the body that we're a part of in our case for Calvary Chapel of El Paso for this particular church fellowship when we are not doing things rightly inside the body when we are not treating each other with the love and respect that God has laid out for us to use then it causes problems it has ripple effects But God has laid out for us so much in the way of guidance for making his body, his church, an effective witness and a powerful instrument of His ministry here on the earth. God has laid it out and there was a purpose for it. There is nothing in the word of God that was just casually tossed in. Everything that is in there is for a purpose. And so it's not a coincidence that... So much of the New Testament talks about godly living, but also talks about the relationships and the relationship of the body. And Satan knows this. Satan knows this just as well as anybody else, and he's hard at work trying to get us to mess this thing up from inside, to blow this thing up from the inside. In the same way that God is trying to work on us from the inside out, Satan is trying to mess the body up from the inside out. It's not enough for him just to to attack using the world, but sometimes he's attacking us through the actions that we're allowing to take place inside the body. And so he starts here with the importance of being one in Christ, of having this one mind. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another, love his brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. So he says, finally, after all the doctrine, the specific relationships, let's get these last few things straight. To be of one mind, to think similarly, to think like someone who has been changed by God, to think like someone who is different from the world. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, it says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So Paul is saying almost the same thing here in Philippians. He says to be like-minded, to have the same love, to be of one accord, to be of one mind, to be unified, to be similar, to be like one another. So whose mind should we try to emulate? You know, you have to have some place, some common ground that we can all get together, that we can all try to be more like each other, and obviously that would be the mind of Christ. As you drop down a few verses in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He lays it out for us. He says to be like-minded, to be of one accord, to be of one mind. And then he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is the mind that we are to be centered on and to to be agreed together with. We have to to learn to align ourselves with his way of thinking. The sooner we get away from trying to make others like us, the faster we can focus on being more like him. We spend so much time trying to make others look like us, act like us, think like us, when we should really be focused on ourselves thinking more like Jesus, acting more like Jesus, being more like Jesus, and getting others to do the same. That's the way it's supposed to be. And there's this idea that, that I remember being taught when I was going through my own premarital counseling when my wife and I were engaged and we were preparing to be married, and and they talked about the triangle. The triangle is that, that we each are individuals that we start on the two opposite ends, the points. And as we draw closer to the Lord, we're naturally being drawn closer together. That if we focus on drawing close to the Lord, then drawing closer to each other, that starts to take care of itself in many ways. You still have to work at it. You still have to do things. You still have to put in the time, but there is a natural bonding that is taking place because we're centered upon Jesus Christ. And the same idea, this triangle theory, it holds true within the body, within this family, that as we are drawing closer to the Lord, we will naturally be drawing closer to each other we will naturally be knit together, because we are founding the relationships that we're building inside the body of Christ, especially on Jesus Christ. We're founding these things on Him, and so it's not this this ambiguous or this moving target that's so hard to find. God made it so easy. He wants us to be able to know Him. He wants us to be able to be more like Him. He wants us to find Him. You know, I I make fun of some of my friends that go hunting. they call it hunting but really it's just breathing target practice because they they wait for for the deer to go and, and find a feeding spot and they actually put the food there for them and so they wait until the deer comes and then it's stationary it's just standing there eating and then they pop it. That's not hunting that's stationary target practice with a breathing animal you know it's not hunting but hunting is like really you know waiting for that right moment and trying to find it and then you wait and sometimes if you miss that shot then you might have to wait a long time before you get another one but that's not the way God wants this to be he wants us to have a stationary target he wants us to have a benchmark he wants us to be able to know how we're doing in relation to where we're supposed to be and he doesn't move because he's the same yesterday today and forever right I mean, that's one of the best parts about God is that he is unchanging. He is completely faithful to be unchanging because he has always been, always will be completely perfect. And so he's given us this target, which is himself, to be able to lock onto and say, that's who we want to be more like. That's who we want to think like. And as we get closer to Jesus and we learn to think like him, there are some obvious characteristics that need to be visible in us. And the first one that I want to share with you this morning is humility. Humility is something that is super important, especially inside the body of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, in humility, let each esteem others better than himself, Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." So he starts his section out with the word nothing. Nothing is a pretty all-encompassing word. So we need to understand that. We need to recognize that. That he says, let nothing, not a single thing in our lives should be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But he doesn't just stop there. He gives us what it should be done in. He says, but in lowliness of mind, in humility, let each esteem others better than himself. It doesn't mean that we put everyone else on a pedestal. It also doesn't mean that we dig a trench for ourselves. You know, we, we need to learn to get self out of the way. Even the people that, that maybe you're one of them, or, or maybe you know someone. You know, well, I'm just nobody, and well, I wish that I had any gifts and talents, but I really don't. I wish that I could sing, or I wish that I could, and everything is always, never about anything that they're doing well, and so it makes it seem like that's humility. But that's not humility, because the focus is still all on me. I can't do that. I can't do that. I wish I was different. I wish I was better. The focus is still on self. So we can lack humility on both sides of the spectrum. We can always be talking about how great we are, or we could be talking about how terrible we are. But either way, the focus is still in the wrong place because it's on us. We need to get away from that. You know, there's a a great acronym, JOY, Jesus, Others, You. And that should be the priority. That should be the order that we think, obviously, first and foremost, what would Jesus want us to do in this situation? How would Jesus want me to respond in this? Then we need to think of others. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests. It doesn't say to ignore yourself, but it says look out in addition to your own interests, also for the interests of others, to esteem others better than yourself. And then we get to us. You know, we, we consider ourselves, but we need to think more of others and their needs. And you know, the, the easiest way that I could describe that in a picture for you is being a parent at Christmas and what a difference it is from being a child at Christmas. You know, growing up, I remember looking forward to Christmas, not just because of Jesus' birth, although that should be the most important thing, but sometimes as a child, you you lose sight of that. And it becomes more about the gifts, and, and not about giving of gifts, it's about the receiving of gifts. You know, it's like, oh, I can't wait for Christmas, you know, school's out, that means that presents are almost here. Like, that was really the attitude of it. And being so excited on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and to open these gifts. The same thing when it was my, my birthday. You know, couldn't wait to get stuff. But now, it, there's been this transition. I got married, and then, then it started to change a little bit. And then we started having children. And now, my wife and I have been blessed with four children. And, and Christmas is very, very different. My, my seven-year-old daughter, she actually asked me Christmas Day. She said, Daddy, where are your presents? And, and it, it had just struck her after going through all of this stuff that they hadn't gotten anything specifically for me. But my wife and I had already talked about that, that, that we were fine with that because we just wanted to get stuff for them. And she noticed it, but you know, it was one of those things that she had been so excited. And for me, that was the highlight of my day to be able to watch my kids, just the excitement that they had and to be able to open these gifts. And it wasn't even necessarily about what they got. For them, some of the excitement was just being able to open it. And so it's a simple picture of what it's supposed to look like to look out not just for your own interests, but also for the interests of others and to take pleasure in meeting the needs of someone else. Not just to take pleasure in having your needs met, but to also meet the needs of those around us. And Jesus, the Son of God, obviously looked out for our interests way more than his own physical interests interests, when he came to live as a man. He washed feet. This is God, the Son of God. Rich Freeman came last weekend and he shared so clearly and so powerfully about how there was no doubt that Jesus was declaring himself to be God. There was no religious Jew Who heard him speak that didn't understand that he was declaring himself to be God. And so he came. He lived on the earth as a man, but he humbled himself. He humbled himself even as a bondservant. He got down on his hands and knees and he literally was washing feet. He was washing the feet of some people that that before Jesus had called them to be disciples, these guys were were really bad. Nobody would have hired some of these guys. And yet Jesus is down on his hands and his knees, and he's washing their feet. But then not only that, but he took it to the ultimate, to the extreme, and he died the death of a criminal on the cross for us, for our sins. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Because he was looking out for the needs of others. He was looking out for us. And not all of us, in fact, Most of us may never be called to take it to that extreme. But we are all called to look out for the interests of others. We're all called to serve each other. We're all called to be obedient to this example. And this example is rooted in in a perfect love. Going back to verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3, he says to be of one mind. But then he says to have compassion for one another and to love as brothers, to be tenderhearted, to be courteous. In the New Living Translation, it says to sympathize with each other, to love each other as brothers and sisters, and to be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Sympathy and compassion are to really consider and to be aware of another person's situation, to be aware of their struggles, their temptations, their burdens, about the highs and the lows, about everything that's going on in their life about what has led them to that moment to be consciously actively aware of these things you know we, I I remember going to Wales on a, a missions trip and we we went out witnessing one on one and and we would talk to people and and it's such a different culture there because people tend to be much more closed but as soon as they open up, from the moment that they open up, it's just like a completely open book. And so it was a very, very different kind of a culture thing when we went to church and we would say, we would hear somebody say, hey, how are you doing? And then they would like sit down. It, this would be a five-minute conversation. It's not like here. You say, hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing good. And you, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And then you walk your separate ways. It was a totally different thing. They really wanted to engage with you because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. Then when they said, hey, how are you doing? They really wanted to know what's going on in your life. How has your week been? You know, what are some of the things that I can pray with you for? Like, it, was amazing. it was just a totally, totally different thing. And, and it's something that, that I wish we could do more of here. I don't know if it's just cultural. I don't know if it's just us. I don't know if it's just me, but, but it just seems like, hey, how are you doing? Doing good. How are you? Doing good. And then it's it. That's the end of it. We need to sometimes slow down to take the time to have this sympathy and this compassion. You know, and as brothers and sisters, there are going to be times that, that as we're trying to extend this compassion as we want to know, as we want to love, as we want to spend time with each other, that we're still going to fight. We're still going to disagree. You know, I, I have a brother and there are times, there are literal scars on, our, on my parents' house from some of the knockdown drag out battles that we had. You know, breaking walls. There's a door that leads from our my parents' living room into their garage that has like all of these marks from one of us trying to get through the door, just banging on the door and there's, you know, it's splintered. And I don't know if my parents leave it there to remind us of how terrible we were as kids, but but they've never replaced it. And so every time that I go, I see those on the door and I remember but I also remember at a very, very early age, I can't even remember how young I was, it just seems like it was something that was always there, it was my dad telling us that no matter what, that we were gonna have friends and we were gonna have very, very close friends, best friends, people that, that would stay with us through thick and thin, but that there was never going to be anybody else that was going to be as close as we were as brothers. That we would go through highs and lows, that we would have difficulties, that we would disagree, that we would fight, that we would greatly dislike each other, borderline hate each other at times, but that we were never going to be able to stop loving each other because we were brothers. And it held true. We had some terrible times. And now God has blessed that relationship so much because we're brothers. And that's the same kind of thing that's supposed to take place with us. This doesn't mean that we're not going to have problems inside this thing that we call a family, the body of Christ. We are going to disagree. We're going to fight. But we need to never stop loving. And we need to learn to be tender-hearted and courteous with humility. It's an area that we especially need to be growing in constantly within the body of Christ because there's a natural tug, a natural tendency for us to be the complete opposite of those things. That as we learn more about how we're supposed to live, there's a natural tendency for us to become the know-it-all, to become the holier-than-thou, to become the Holy Spirit in essence in the lives of other people. But I can't tell you how many times that I have been going through a difficult season or a struggle in my life and been so utterly and extremely blessed by someone who came alongside me to encourage me in the proper way. Somebody that came humbly, not rubbing it in my face that I had fallen and that they hadn't, not rubbing it in my face that this was a struggle that they've never had to fight, that this was a battle that they've won, but humbly Courteously, not barging their way in to adamantly tell me how I was wrong and all the ways that I should have recognized it, and all the things that I should have done differently, and how could I be a Christian, how could I be a leader in a church and not have recognized this? How could I possibly have allowed myself to go down this road? But courteously, with love, tenderheartedly, gently, with a loving desire to support and to uplift. Certainly there's a time for for swift and harsh correction. But not every time. Look at the life of Jesus. There were times when he was throwing people out of the temple. What was he doing? This wasn't a a soft, gentle reproach. He was turning tables. He was using a whip. He was tearing it up. But there were so many other times when he just simply, gently, tenderly corrected. You look at how he actually talked to Peter. I think that's one of the reasons that Peter really got it and Peter put it in this this letter that he wrote. It's because if there was anybody that Jesus could have rebuked, it would have been Peter. He says, I would die for you. And Jesus says, before the night ends, you're going to deny me three times. He says, that would never happen. Not in a million years. You don't even know who you're talking to. I would die for you. And then sure enough, he denies him three times. Three times in one evening. And yet when the the correction came, it almost didn't even feel like correction. He asked him, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Peter, do you love me? Lord, it breaks my heart that you're asking me again. You know that I do. And feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. And that was the correction, that was the correction. And so sometimes that's needed. There's a time and a place for strict correction, but there's also room for tender-hearted mercies as well. And we need to be discerning about which one is which. One of the things that that I've tried to carry with me now that I've finally gotten it and understood it and really taken it to heart is that if you find even the slightest bit of pleasure or enjoyment in correcting someone, you are most probably not the person that should be doing that correcting. It should break our hearts to have to go to a brother and say, you know, this is wrong. This is something that needs to change in your life. You need to be different than this. It shouldn't be something that excites us, and we can't wait to get them so that we can point them to that scripture and and just see the look on their face when they recognize that we're the hammer and we've brought correction. There was a time early on when I was first ordained that that's what I thought my ministry was supposed to be. I was so far off, and I hope that, that I've been able to get to everybody. I know that I haven't, but there were people that I hurt there were people that I hurt as a pastor because I came and I corrected them and I corrected them in that kind of an attitude. That I was the hammer, I was the Holy Spirit in essence, just the vocal mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit in their lives and I needed to bring this swift correction. And there were people that I hurt. Some of you might even be here today and if you are and I haven't made it to you yet, I deeply regret it and I am so sorry. Because that wasn't who God called me to be. It took me a while and to realize that, that I, I was actually called to be in the complete opposite side of things. I was called to be the one with tender-hearted mercies, that it, I just don't have it in me. It's really not supposed to be my character. But so many of us get so excited about being able to correct other people. You know, did you see what so-and-so did? I can't believe it. And then we start gossiping. We start spreading it. And all of these things start to have ripple effects. And it goes out. And so we're called to have these tender-hearted mercies, to humbly correct, to gently bring this. And we're called to blessing in this. As he goes on in verse 9 of 1 Peter 3, he says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. In the New Living Translation, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. How difficult is that for us? Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. Man, I mean, that, that just really digs deep for some of us, for me personally. It's so hard for me so hard for me not to repay evil with evil sometimes. And we're not talking about, you know, you punched me and so I'm going to knock your block off. and We're not talking about something like that, but, but the easiest thing for me to fall into is the road rage. Somebody cuts me off and then, you know, now I, I just need to make sure that nobody else can ever get in my lane ever again. You know, and, and the people, maybe some of you are here today, you, you guys test me, you tempt me, because it says road closed in however many feet, and there goes a car zooming by. You see 20 cars in line, and there you go, zooming by to the front. It causes road rage in me, and it's a struggle. It's a challenge for me because my initial response is not to pray God's blessing upon them because maybe there's some kind of a medical emergency. Maybe they need to get to their kid. Maybe something terrible has gone wrong. My immediate thought is, I hope the cop catches you. I hope. Like, I'm not thinking terrible stuff. I don't want him to crash and die. I just. But I want you to go to jail. You know, I, I want something to happen. That's my initial response. And there have been so many times that God has spoken to me about that as I'm driving. And just, it's dumb. Why, why am I so concerned about it? But I want to repay evil for evil. But he says to do the complete opposite. There's a pastor in, in Philadelphia, Calvary, Philly, his name's Joe Fosh, and he shared a great thought in a Bible study that I was listening to on this section. He says that to repay good with evil is demonic. When somebody does something nice for you and you repay them with evil, that's demonic. Like that is truly something from the pits of hell. To repay evil with evil is fleshly, that's natural. When somebody does something wrong to you, you naturally want to do something wrong to them. But to repay evil with goodness is divine. To repay evil with goodness is divine. And think about it. How difficult it is for us to do, but when it actually happens, how obvious of a difference it is to the way the world responds. It's so easy for us to justify in our own minds, even, and even in the eyes of others who've been wronged by maybe those very same people, and especially inside the church. You know, I can't believe so and so is still doing that. I can't believe so and so is still leading Bibles today. I can't believe so and so is still up on the stage leading worship. I can't believe so and so whatever. Because we have these grudges. We've held on to all of these things, and we feel like somebody else has shown evil in their lives. And so because we didn't get the response that we were looking for, because we didn't see them called out on the carpet, now they're, they're disqualified for life. That's to repay evil with evil. That's really what it is. To never allow room for forgiveness and restoration. But we've been called to be totally different. Ephesians 4.2, Ephesians 4.32, 1 Peter 3.8, Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. It says we've been called to bear with one another, to love one another, to show tenderhearted mercies, to put the interests of others above our own, to bless those who curse us and spitefully use us. I mean, there seems to be a pattern here. It's not just an isolated thing. God's put it all over the place for us to catch this point. How many here today, don't raise your hands, but how many here today have been hurt or wronged by a brother or sister inside this fellowship? How many of you, how many of us, have hurt or wronged a brother in this fellowship? I mean, if we're truly being honest, I think that we'd all be raising our hands in response to both questions because most if not all of us have done both. We've been hurt, we've been burned. There are people that that are here that it has taken so long for them to get back being active in ministry, not just in full-time ministry, but to be involved in some kind of ministry because they've been burned by the church. Maybe this church, maybe another. There are so many people that are hurting inside the body of Christ because of Wounds that have been self-inflicted. Things that this body has done to others in this body. But we've been called to be different. God desires so much more from us than anger and pettiness and grudges. But he also desires so much more through us. He desires so much more through us. And there's blessing at the end of it. There is blessing at the end of it. Not because you're you're trying to forgive somebody or trying to do things nice for people that are being evil to you so that God's going to give you stuff. That's not the attitude. But it's to understand that there's a blessing attached to it. And sometimes, many times, most times, that blessing is to have that brother or sister restored into a right relationship, first and foremost with Jesus, but also with you. And that's a blessing, and it should be looked upon that way. And God's watching over all of this stuff. Coming back to verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 3, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So part of living a long and spiritually fruitful life involves keeping our words clean and uplifting. It's very, very clear, very, very plain and simple. He who would love life and see good days, okay, I think that makes sense. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. But he starts with these two exhortations about the words that come out of our mouths. In James chapter 3 verses 5 through 10, he says, even so the tongue is a little member and it boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. I mean, that's powerful language there. He says that the tongue, all of the stuff that's going wrong, that the words that we're speaking, that this is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. None of us in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own power, can tame our tongues. It has to be divine intervention. Because it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison with it we bless our god and father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of god out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing my brethren these things ought not to be so i mean it's pretty clear there's not a lot that we have to delve into james laid it out for us and when you stop and think about it how much more regret is there in our lives over things that we've said versus things that we left unsaid Sure there are times that we wish we would have said something but there is so much more regret at least in my life over things that I've actually said. Words that have come out. Maybe in a, in a moment of anger. Maybe in a, a wrong attitude. Maybe under the wrong impression. Maybe I, had, I was working under the wrong facts. I was taking something to be true and it turns out it wasn't and I had said something those are the things that you regret because once it's out there it's out there you can't walk it back you know we talk about walking things back you know you delete your your tweet from twitter or you delete the facebook post or or you you send out a correction if it's a news article but you can't walk it back like it's already out there it's already out there the damage has already been done So James' advice really here proves that Thumper's dad knew what he was talking about. If you can't say something nice, then don't say anything at all. If you can't say something nice, then don't say anything at all. Maybe that's because God has not called you to be the one to share with that person in that moment. If you can't think of anything that would honor and glorify God to say to that person, probably better off just keeping your mouth shut. I mean, who would have known that Disney had it right on that? If he can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. We need to keep our words under control. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, for building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Grace, we've talked about before, unmerited favor. Something, a blessing that they didn't deserve. I mean, my, my speech does not always do that. That's a very convicting thing for me. My speech, the things that I say, don't always bring grace to the hearers. But I need to try. We need to try. We need to do better. He says in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. He says to put away all of these things, and it's in the context of speech, of the things that we say. Think about the things that we say in bitterness. Most, if not all of them, are terrible. Think about the things that we say in wrath and in anger. Same thing. In clamoring. Clamoring is to, well, they don't know what they're doing. Well, they need to change this. Well, this is wrong. That's wrong. And and getting a group together. That's clamoring. How many times does that turn out well? And then evil speaking, to be put away from us. The gossip, the slander, the things that that get tossed around inside of a body. The things that tear a body up from within. We need to put away all of these things. And we need to impart grace to the hearers. We're also called to not just avoid doing evil, but actually to turn away from it completely, to hate evil, to abhor it, and to do what is good. In 1 Peter 3.11, he says, let him turn away from evil and do good. And one of the most impactful verses in my life has been Romans 12.9, which directly relates to that. He says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. And one of the, the interesting things that I found out this week as I was studying is that there are two different Greek words used in these two passages for the word evil. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the Greek word is "kakos." And keikos means to, to miss the mark, to fall short, to know that there is something that you were trying to get to and you fell into a temptation. You fell into sin. You missed the mark. But then Paul in Romans takes it one step further because the word that he uses for evil there is a word called poneros. And poneros is actually taking it to the nth degree because poneros is actually to get to a place where you enjoy doing evil you try to pull others into it, and you can even declare it to be good. We need to run from both, but he says here in 12.9 in of Romans, to abhor what is evil, to abhor what is evil. And yet inside the body of Christ, hopefully not inside this fellowship, but I know that there are definitely places inside the body of Christ that, at large that there are pastors that get up even. And declare things that are strictly, clearly, obviously laid out as sinful and wrong in the Word of God. And they get up and they declare from behind pulpits that it's okay. That they're righteous. That God has an understanding. That 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 was a different time. We need to not call what is evil good. We need to recognize evil for what it is and call it evil. And not just call it evil, but to turn away from it completely. To do a 180. Not a 360 as some people talk about and you're back where you started, but to do a 180, to completely turn our backs on it and to go towards what is good, to cling to what is good. So he says here to abhor what is evil, to hate with a deep, dark passion all that is evil, but then to cling, to hold on for dear life with everything that you have to what is good, to hold on to that. God has made it clear that we have to do these things, but it isn't enough just to turn away from evil, but we need to do good and to cling to it. We also need to be seeking and making peace. Back in 1 Peter 3, 11, he says, let him seek peace and pursue it. It's been said that peace has to be sought after, but trouble finds you even when you're not looking for it. And I think that that's true. How difficult it is to really find peace. You have to work at it. It has to be a conscious effort. But trouble and fights and quarrels and arguments and gossip and slander, those things just find you. Like There are people that just for whatever reason cannot wait to get that started with anybody. So he says to pursue peace, to seek it out. Back in Romans twelve seventeen through 21, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not become Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul even takes it one step further. He says, don't be overcome by evil. Don't do evil. Don't allow evil to overtake you. But not just do good, but overcome evil by doing good. Similar thoughts to what we've already studied, to repay evil with good, to seek out the good things, to live in peace, to love your enemies. And it's definitely not a coincidence that Paul's description of the armor of God in Ephesians 6 includes the gospel of peace. He goes through and he talks about all these things. He talks about truth. He talks about righteousness. He talks about faith. He talks about salvation. And he talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And yet right smack dab in the center is what? The gospel of peace having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Because that's what we're supposed to be bringing as we're trying to invite people to be a part of this family. It's the gospel of peace, the reconciliation. People who were once at war with God now being brought close and being adopted, being brought into this family to no longer be at war with God, but to be at peace with him. And that's challenging. It's difficult. Peace is hard work. But that's what we're called to. And we can't earn our salvation by doing all of these good things. And we, we're very, very clear on that in this particular fellowship here. You can't earn your salvation. Same way you can't earn it, you can't earn your way out of it. But if you truly are a child of God, our lives need to look different. But based on our actions, we can still earn a blockage in our relationship with Jesus. We can earn a blockage. In verse 12 of 1 Peter 3, he says, for the eyes of the Lord are what? On the righteous. That's a, that's a great promise to hold on to. And his ears are open to their prayers. It's another great promise to hold on to. But then he says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Not just against those who are evil, but those who do evil. There are times where we allow The things that we're doing to mess up our closeness in the relationship that we have with Jesus. God loves each one of us so much, and he wants us to know him deeply and fully, but we need to want that as well, and it needs to be the constant thing that it is on his end, on our end as well. Jesus constantly wants us to draw closer to Him, but we need to constantly want to draw closer to Him. And part of that is to live rightly, to do the right things. When we fail and we fall into sin, or worse yet, when we seek it out, then there's a disconnect that takes place in our end of the relationship. The best description that I ever heard was from a man named Don McClure. And he talked about the love, the wisdom, the blessing, the goodness of God, all the things that God is trying to pour into our lives that it's like a faucet, like a shower head that never shuts off. It's just constant and continual, just blessing upon blessing. And when we're not hearing from God, when we're not receiving these blessings, all these things that God has promised to us, all those things that God wants us to, to partake in, and when we are not seeing fruitfulness in our lives, into the lives of others, it's not because he turned the faucet off it's because the faucet is still flowing and we stepped out of it. We moved away. We moved away by our actions. And sometimes those actions that move us away are the way that we treat our brothers and sisters inside the body. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware that there are ripple effects inside the body. That if everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing, this body has been designed by a perfect designer. I mean, think about that. This body, the body of Christ has been designed by perfection, perfection. He created it and he created it for a purpose. He's created each one of us for a purpose, uniquely, specifically, individually by name and gifted each one of us. And he's called us to do many things for him in the lives of others. And when we fall short, when we fail, then there's an emptiness, there's a void that's taking place in that particular area. So we need to be aware of that. We need to make sure that we're staying in a, a good, right relationship with Jesus, that our eyes are focused on him, that our lives are reflecting him. And that gets us to our last section, is character over reputation. 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14, it says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Obviously, this is just logical. There are fewer people who are going to want to do bad things to you if you are doing fewer bad things to them. The more good things that we're doing to each other, the fewer things that people have to nitpick at. It's just an obvious thing. And it doesn't mean that it can or won't happen because sometimes it still does. Sometimes we still suffer for doing good. But you can be sure that God sees it and he's honored by it. And when we're threatened for clinging to what is good, God tells us not to be troubled by it, but just to continue, to continue in doing good. And then in verse 15, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts to set apart that place in our hearts, in our lives. And that part that is sanctified unto the Lord, that is only for him, that's reserved for him, that needs to be growing in our lives. It's not just something that, well, I got saved and I gave Jesus this little part of my heart. No, he wants all of it. But he's gonna take it piece by piece so that he can slowly, gradually take these things away and insert himself and the things of God more fully into that void and so that you and I will be more fulfilled than we ever thought possible. And that's what he wants to do. So he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And then he says to be ready to give a defense. And he could have been ready to give a defense for any number of different things in the Christian life. But notice what he picked. To give a defense for the hope that is in us. God could have had Peter write about defending any number of different things. But it was the hope that is in us. Because that is something that the world does not have. An everlasting, enduring hope that does not fail. That does not disappoint. That's something that they need to know about. And that's something they need to see in us. And that's something that we need to be able to describe and talk about when they ask about it. Hope placed in something that will not disappoint is an extremely powerful motivation. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, it says, Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Not because we enjoy going through hard stuff, but knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So this hope does not disappoint because God doesn't disappoint, because God is perfect and unfailing. And that leads us to this last part, verses 16 and 17 in 1 Peter 3. Having a good conscience that we're doing the right things, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I remember some of the first pieces of advice that I received when I joined the ministry full time as a pastor. And they really all had to do with character and reputation. The first one is that I needed to worry about my character and let God handle my reputation. Because at the end of the day, you're going to think what you're going to think. But I still have to do what's right. Let God handle how everybody else thinks about you. You do what you are supposed to do. The second thing was that character is what your life reflects when no one is watching but God. There are things that we know we wouldn't do. There are people that we know we wouldn't bring to certain things. There are words that would never come out of our mouths inside of a church or outside of a church in the presence of Pastor Charlie. I mean, just think about that. Use Pastor Charlie. If, it, if it's difficult for you to figure out, should I be doing this, should I not be doing this? Should I say this, should I not say this? Because most of you guys would still say whatever in front of Pastor Sean, because he's just Pastor Sean. But, but Pastor Charlie, think about would I actually do this if Pastor Charlie was sitting right next to me? Would I ask Pastor Charlie to do this with me? Like, it's an easy task, and that's not even holiness. Like, that's, that's still a man. Think about what it is to say, would Jesus be okay with me doing this? Would Jesus be okay with me doing this? And that's character. Character is what your life reflects when no one is watching but God. And then the last thing, the same people who cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, one week later were crying, crucify him, crucify him. You can get caught up in all the ups and downs of public opinion and what people think about your reputation, what people think about the ministry that God is doing in your life, what people think about your walk and your relationship with Jesus Christ, even though most people don't even have a clue of what your relationship actually is with Jesus. But everybody's got an opinion on everything, right? So we can get worried about that and get caught up in all those ups and downs, or we can just trust in Jesus. And we can focus on our character, focus on being more like Him. There are multiple times in the life of every believer when we are faced with the unenviable position of having done all the right things, just in one particular area, but having done all the right things and still been reviled. You know, pastors, when they talk about it at pastors' conferences and different things, they talk about when sheep bite back. You know, where, where you're, you're trying, you are really trying to pour yourself out. You're trying to do stuff. And it's not just a pastoral thing, it's every child of God. You're trying to pour yourself out into somebody else's life. You're trying to, to go above and beyond to do what God has called you to do, to, to be a, a tender-hearted mercy giver in their life. And they turn around and they slander you or they turn around and they tell you that it's none of your business or that they never want to see you or whatever. Don't get caught up in the ups and downs of that. Sure it hurts. You know something happened to me last weekend and it put me in a funk for about a day maybe a day and a half and it was something that I just couldn't let go of and I was reminded of this that it doesn't matter as much it's not that you don't care about anybody and you know who who cares what you think no that's not the attitude but the attitude is did I do what God told me to do and if I did you may disagree But I would rather have you disagree with me doing what God told me to do than agree with me doing what you told me to do. Right? I mean, that's just the way it's got to be. We have to be more concerned with our character to live above reproach. And in God's perfect time, the truth becomes clear. The truth becomes clear. And those who wrongly attack your character, they'll be put to shame. And Peter closes this section with the reminder that if you're going to suffer, it's better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. It's better to suffer, because we're all going to suffer. It's obvious, it's clear, Jesus said it. We're all going to suffer. But it's better to suffer for having done the right things, for having said the right things, for having lived the way God called us to live, than it is for doing the wrong things. And if we're doing those right things, if we're living the way we're supposed to, if we're working on that triangle theory, that relationship with Jesus, we are naturally going to continue to grow closer together as a body as one family in Christ, as one family here in this particular section. You know, this is not the body of Christ. Calvary Chapel of El Paso is not the body of Christ as a whole. It's just one section, one small section of this huge family. But if we can continue to draw closer to Jesus Christ as individuals, then as a fellowship here at Calvary Chapel of El Paso, it excites me to think about the ministry that can happen, the ministry that can happen into this city the things that we can do in our families, the things that we can do in our workplaces, the things that we can do in our schools, and the changes that that we can see in people's lives. And we have the privilege to be able to be a part of that. But coming back to where we started, we have to be inviting people to a family that really loves each other, because otherwise nobody's gonna wanna join this family, right? We need to love each other, We need to get closer to Jesus, amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for for bringing us into this family, for giving us this blessing that none of us deserve. None of us has ever done anything to earn or to be rewarded by with salvation, but you've granted it to us. You've brought us into your family, and so we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that we would help, help others to see you even in our interactions here inside the body. that we would love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would desire to reach out to one another, that we would truly sympathize, that we would have compassion, that we would care about what's going on in other people's lives. That there would never be a person that could come through the doors of this church and to leave that day without having felt the love of God. I pray that that would be a hallmark of this fellowship, that we would love each other, that we would love you, and that it would be readily apparent, and that it would be so overflowing from our lives that no one could leave this church without having felt your love. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in us, that you would refine us and purify us, that you would strengthen and encourage us, and that you would help us to draw closer to you. And We ask and pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. If you all would please stand. Instead of doing a closing song today, we're actually gonna watch a video. Uh, It's a little bit dated, but it is my son James' favorite video, and it's where this whole thing started today. It's called Welcome to the Family by Salty and the Kids Praise, and I would encourage you, if there's anything that God's laid on your heart, you need prayer this morning, and especially if you're here today and you haven't become a part of this family, that you haven't made Jesus your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you, take this opportunity today and become a part of this family. It really is a wonderful blessing, and we would love to have you. Amen? Amen. Seats, and come up and stand with me here on the stage, and I'm gonna really welcome you into God's family. Come on, kids, get up out of your seats and start walking, come on. Welcome to the family. We're glad that you have come to share your life with us as we grow in love and may we always be to you what God would have us be: a family always there to be strong and to Share your life with us as as we grow.